Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. This episode of Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by BioOptimizer's P3OM. P3OM is a probiotic that stands out. Reason being is unlike most probiotics, it doesn't just pass through your system. P3OM's strain doubles every 20 minutes and maintains in the human digestive system. This allows it to eliminate pathogens and waste before it is safely eliminated from your system. The folks at BioOptimizers are confident you will be satisfied, which is why they are offering you your first bottle for free. And like with all their products, they stand behind their 365-day money-back guarantee. So go to www.p3om.com forward slash human free and you will automatically get access to your unique coupon code to claim your free bottle. Limit one per household and as always, links can be found in the show notes. All right, folks, now back to the show. But man, we'll just get going. Yeah, we are up. Awesome. Yeah, I've got to, I've got to jump. After this, I've got to go meet. I've got to meet with somebody who wants to do He's got a, he's doing some research on a carnivore diet. So I've got oh, cool. a conference call with him as well. So Kathleen, tell us quickly a little bit about you. And so we can get into the, get into the, the meat of the, the meat of the matter, I suppose. All right. Well, um, Zach and I were just talking about, we both grew up in the Midwest. So we were talking about that. Um, but yes, yeah, so I grew up in the Midwest in a small town and I ate the, almost the same diet that you did, Sean. So I, when I was reading your book, I'm like, oh, I ate the same way you did. It's so funny how you drank the, the sugary milk out of your cereal. Um, so yeah, my diet trajectory was very similar to yours. So I thought that was so funny. Um, so in the Midwest, you can play four sports. So that's what I did. I was really into athletics. And then when I decided I wanted to go to school, I wanted to do something in medicine. So, because a lot of the people in my family are in medicine. So I had this interest in athletics and I had been, um, I'll get more into this later if we have time, but um, I was sick my whole life with gastrointestinal issues and fatigue and just a lot of symptoms that nobody put together um, until very recently. But um, that kind of shaped my view of nutrition and I think um, put me into a place that I decided to become a dietitian. So I went to Iowa State after high school and I did my bachelor's in dietetics. Um, And then I went straight to grad school after that and did another nutrition degree in Oklahoma. Um, And so I had a very conventional training in nutrition and dietetics. And so then when I got out of school, I put all of my stuff into my car and I said, I'm going to Denver, Colorado. And I did. I went to Denver and I was there for six years. Um, And I did mostly ICU and critical care nutrition there with National Jewish. So it was a really good learning experience to learn about pathophysiology um, and see. I did a lot of um, TPN and tube feeding mostly because my patients were on ventilators. So it was a really good way for me to experience. Um, here's a nutrition prescription that I've designed. I infuse this and then I watch electrolytes and I watch um, ventilator changes. So it was a really good way for me to see what a nutrition prescription can do in a really immediate way without having to argue with someone about um, nutrition and having to worry about the compliance piece. So that was good experience, but then I still was, personally, I was pretty, I wasn't feeling very good. I was pretty fatigued. I was doing a lot of cycling, and um, so I kept looking into this, and then at that time, CrossFit started to become sort of a big thing, and so I had some friends that were telling me that they were eating like cavemen, and I remember just thinking to myself, I can't believe somebody would 
buy into this and want to eat like a caveman because cavemen only lived until about 30 years old, as far as we know. And I was eating my chicken breast sandwich every day at lunch with milk and sun chips and fruit. Um, but I was not feeling good at all, but I was still really uh, convinced by the nutrition dogma. So I was really resistant to making diet changes at that time. Um, and then I just got to a point where I couldn't really do that anymore. And I started to become really fatigued. I wasn't seeing any progression in my workouts. I was um, just kind of taking a step back with my cycling. And so I thought, well, maybe I do need to tweak my diet a little bit. Um, and at the same time, I ended up moving back to the Midwest. And um, so at that time, I did change my diet. And I started to do more of a paleo type diet. Um, and I did feel a little bit better. And so I continued to do that for a while. And I was still cycling a lot. And then I actually was going down a hill um, on my bike <laughs> at like 30 miles an hour, probably with a really heavy backpack on my way to work one day. And I, um, I ended up falling off and I hurt myself really bad. And so I had an MRI done of my spine and my spine was kind of a mess. And I thought, well, that's interesting. That wasn't, shouldn't have been that traumatic of a fall off my bike. So, but nobody really diagnosed me with anything at the time. So um, I just kind of continued on this path that I was on and I was still in ICU medicine at the time working with, at that time I was at the, the veterans administration and my veterans would get off the ventilator and go smoke a cigarette. <laughs> um, so this was like a really, a uh, normal way of living for me was taking care of sick people, me being sick, nobody really know what's going on. It's funny to look back in hindsight at the crazy things we do. Um, so then I ended up moving to Europe for a little while and I worked on a military base in Europe, um, which was also a cool experience. And then I started to see the way that other cultures were living and I thought, well, and then I had more questions because other people weren't eating like Americans and they certainly didn't look like Americans when I would look around. Um, so they looked healthier and fit. They were walking a lot. Um, and I didn't see the level of obesity that I would see in America. Right. So, um, at that time I did change my diet to more of a plant-based type diet. Um, and now I look back and I, cause I just thought, well, it must be the, the heaviness of the American diet or something. I don't know what I was thinking. I was just trying to feel better. Um, and so I look back at pictures now, and this is something that's interesting in hindsight too, is I actually had like an orange hue to my skin and, um, I was eating a sweet potato every day at lunch because I thought that was healthy on the paleo diet. So I was eating a lot of sweet potatoes. Um, and my skin was actually orange and when I did some testing on myself, I have a genetic SNP and I don't convert beta carotene to vitamin A. Um, so that would explain the orange hue of my skin. And I think, I don't know how common that SNP is, but I was probably vitamin A deficient because I wasn't getting a lot of animal foods. And I was thinking, well, getting a lot of beta carotene, so that's great. Um, but you have to have those animal foods, right? That's what I'm, I'm seeing now so clearly, um, the Monday morning quarterback that you can't get a lot of these nutrients that we need from the plant-based diet. <laughs> hey, can I, let me interject a little humorous anecdote in here. So when I was in my orthopedic surgical residency, we had a, a, one of our surgeons that we trained from was a guy, Dr. Gargas, and he was a spine surgeon. He used to be a chiropractor, went in to become an orthopedic spine surgeon, but he was big into drinking like this copious amounts of, of, of carrot juice. I mean, he drank <laughs> so much. He, he was drinking like liters of carrot juice a day and he was literally orange and yellowish looking. Uh, and I think maybe the same thing was happening, but it was that people look at him like thought he had jaundice. They thought, what's wrong with this guy? But he was drinking <laughs> so much damn carrot juice because he believed that was a, a healthy thing. And I remember I was inspired to try some carrot juice. <laughs> I, was, I was up in, I was in uh, Pike's Place Market up in Seattle and they had carrot juice. And I, and I got a big glass of it and I drank it and it was like, it felt like my innards had been rearranged. It was just like this, I had this like visceral blood response. It was, just, it was like, I felt like something in my body, just something weird happened. It was like really disconcerting. Well, so, they probably did. Something weird probably did happen. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty <laughs> funny, but I mean, drink, I can't see how people can drink all this carrot juice, but anyway, sorry, go, yeah. go on to your story. Yeah. So anyway, so I did a couple years there. Um, and then I moved back home and I started working in outpatient oncology. And so you talk about 
um, really then when you work in medicine, there's this thing that happens. Um, you, some people, and I'm one of them, you become a little bit freaked out because especially working in oncology, I was doing, um, I was actually feeding kids. I was doing TPN and tube feeding with, um, brain tumor patients, pediatrics to adults. And so when you're working in oncology and you see these people suffer, um, you really want to figure it out. You want to figure out how to prevent this disease in yourself and your family members. Um, so what do you do? You research. That's what we're trained to do. Um, in the medical sciences, we're, we're taught to go to the research, which I had done my whole career. And if you go to the research, what does the research tell you? It tells you that a plant-based diet is the way to prevent disease. Um, and there's a lot, in, especially in the oncology world, a lot of fear around meat. So if you look at cardiovascular disease and cancer, those are the two that I would say the main areas um, where we're taught to be fearful of animal products. Um, and so I got more into the plant-based diet during that time. Um, as probably sort of, I think a lot of people do this like a coping mechanism and also a, um, like I said, trying to prevent this disease. And I didn't feel good, so I hadn't felt good for a long time myself, mostly gastrointestinal issues. Um, who was the dietitian you had last, a, a few weeks ago from, I think she was Eastern European. Um, do you remember, what was her name? It was probably a tricky name to remember. Oh, anyway. um, yeah, I know who you're talking about, I think. I'm trying to remember which episode that was. I can find that out. Oh, God, so anyway, I had a really, I had a really similar, when she was telling her story, I had a very similar um, GI history uh, to her. So I thought that was interesting. And I thought she was really brave for sharing that with everybody. But I just wonder, too, how many people um, have the same health issues and they're not being fixed and they're just doing the same crazy stuff over and over and over. Um, so during that time, like I said, I got more heavily into the plant-based diet and my hair started falling out and I was really tired at that time. And then I was pretty desperate. So when you get desperate, you also do functional medicine testing <laughs> when the conventional stuff fails you over and over. So, um, because I was always told that I was super healthy by all the doctors I would see in my labs were always normal. And so I had a functional white cell lymphocyte test done. And the guy that I consulted with was a chiropractor. And he said, well, I think you have diabetes. So you might want to go get this worked up. And my lymphocytes were really um, slow to slow growth on my lymphocyte test because I was really malnourished and not absorbing anything, apparently, according to this test. It's not super validated yet. Um, nonetheless, it gave me some good insights into my own health. But um, so I did go to the doctor and my A1C was like 6.7. Um, and I was just shocked because I have a very low amount of subcutaneous fat. I very athletic. I always, I never had a weight problem in my life. I always ate what I thought was a really healthy diet and I was really sick. And now I'm type two diabetics. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? Right. So, um, so then I, I went to a ketogenic diet because one of the doctors I was working with at the time was using a ketogenic diet with cancer patients. And so I was hearing from her perspective, a different, uh, sort of perspective on the science and all the things that it could do for particularly women's cancers, because most of the women that we would see with breast and ovarian cancer had weight problems, metabolic issues. So she was using that with good success. So I was listening to this really smart doctor, um, who, by the way, had had four kids herself, um, was the, in this high position in oncology, was a, she does Ironman. So this just is like badass lady, right? And she's like really performing cognitively really well. And she's been eating low carb for like 15 years at that point. So I was like, okay, um, there's something to this. So I went ketogenic and then I actually got a little bit of belly fat when I did that because I was trying to eat a lot of fat to get my ketones high. Um, so that wasn't really the right way for me to eat either. And my glucose didn't improve too much when I was on a ketogenic diet. Um, I was probably overeating, not realizing it. Um, putting some MCTs in my coffee and just things like that that weren't super nutritious or healthy. Um, but my GI tract was still a mess. I was still really fatigued. I still had a lot of body pain. My workouts were not good. Um, I played around with fasting a little bit. That would exacerbate my GI issues. That would exacerbate my pain. Um, so I 
kind of figured out that that was not the right way for me to eat. And then I went to a conference in 2016, a low carb conference. Um, and I heard Michael Eads speak. Um, and I'm sure you guys are familiar with Dr. Eads. Yeah, we had him on, on the, the podcast. Show. Yeah, well, yeah. Of course. What, ep- of course what episode, Zach? <laughs> um, so he was talking about this doctor in the 1800s, I think, who put his patients on an all meat diet. And I was like, an all meat diet? That's so bad for you. That's so unhealthy. Who would eat that way? And who would only eat meat? And I can't believe this. And But I was thinking to myself, well, this doctor was curing people with this and I'm so sick and I've tried every diet. So I'm like, at this point, like, what do I have to lose really? Right. So, um, and at this point I was actually getting pretty thin too, a little too thin on the ketogenic diet. Um, like I said, my workouts, I just didn't feel good. You know, like, I'm like, this is no way to live. Like glad my ketones are really high, but I don't feel very good. So, um, and I don't, and I was eating a lot of vegetables and fats, but like trying to keep my protein low, um, because at that time I had read some things from what's his name. Who's the doctor that believes in the mTOR theory? Um, really Rosedale. Is that what it is? Rosedale. Yeah. Ron Rosedale is one of the guys that yeah. is, is worried about too much protein with the mTOR. Yeah. It's, it's so I was reading his stuff. And like I said, at the time I'm working on oncology, so I'm really scared of mTOR. Um, and so, but my hair was falling out and I was really skinny and I didn't feel good. <laughs> now it's funny I can laugh about it right but um all these things we do to try to um match ourselves up with the the literature these nutrition theories um so I suffered a lot during that time and then that was the first time I started contemplating well maybe I just need to not eat plants anymore maybe these antioxidants aren't really antioxidants maybe they're not good for me um and I'm not thriving on this diet so I I just was in that stage, just kind of contemplating, maybe changing my, tweaking my diet again. And um, my diabetes had essentially reversed at this point. So that was good. That was a positive. Um, But I still just, for me, I didn't feel good. And I honestly, I don't think I ever knew what what it was like to really feel good. Um, And so or perform at a high level. Um, So Zach, you're such a freak. I love it. It's, it's crazy. (laughs) Like how does, how, how does that even happen? (laughs) Sometimes Um, I wonder how I got, got to this point (laughs) yeah it's unbelievable um so anyway i at that time then i read a book called the fiber menace i have you guys heard of this book Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, we i'm well well aware of that one as well yeah okay i'm sure i i shouldn't even be asking these questions um so anyway that book was sort of what clicked for me and then i really made the changes so i took all the fiber out of my diet Um, And I immediately felt like a new person within like a few days. I was like, oh, well, that was easy. (laughs) We really complicated this for everybody. Um, All I had to do was stop eating fiber and my chronic GI issues completely went away. Um, And so my diabetes, my glucose was still really good too. Um, And then after that, I started having children. So I have two, I have a four month old now and I have a 26 month old. I was able to do that with, so the first pregnancy, I ate quite, quite a bit of plants. So I wasn't quite there yet, but with my second baby, I ate essentially a carnivore diet really close to that with the exception of the first trimester, because that really sucks. And you're just trying to get through it. Um, for me, I had really bad hyperemesis both times, but, um, I was carnivore for the second one, I would say like 90%. Um, I do like a little bit of chocolate. So that's what I do for the most part is I eat meat and sometimes I'll have desserts. Um, and I'm nursing now and I had very healthy babies, um, was able to, to nurse both of them. I nursed the first one for 19 months, um, while I was pregnant on a nearly carnivore diet. So it can be done. (laughs) Um, both babies are very healthy and, um, I felt really good. So I recently was able to have a diagnosis. You know how I told you I was kind of sick forever and I didn't know what was going on. And um, I actually have a uh, spondyloarthropathy that I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, Sean. And so I have the psoriatic arthritis piece and the enteropathic piece, which explains the bowel symptoms forever. Um, and then I also have the spondylo um, ankylosing spondylitis. So 
that was causing all the pain and my performance was suffering. And so I'm actually an autoimmune case. So looking back again in hindsight, I'm like, oh, everything is making so much sense now. Um, and so I was kind of like when the, the dietitian you had on before was saying she was kind of mad at what she bought into and the way that she uh, ate forever buying into this dogma and she made herself really sick doing that. That's kind of the, in the place that I've been at for a while because it was a really, really simple fix. And I just wonder, um, you know, you, you don't want to get like, oh, I could have, should have, would have, but I do wonder how much better I could have felt during my life and how much different my life could have been had I had more energy and not so much pain. And, um, without the diabetes, I just think like autoimmune cases, we shouldn't really be eating the my plate diet, right? Like that was really designed for healthy people. And I think most of the people in America are not healthy or they may have some sort of underlying autoimmune disease that they're not aware of, haven't been diagnosed yet with. Um, and so we have to be really careful about how we direct people into eating this like balanced diet full of phytonutrients and antioxidants. Like this is going to fix all of your problems when in reality and what I see clinically and with my own personal experience, it actually really made things worse. Um, and it really clouds the picture too. So it's really, when you're on such a mixed heterogeneous diet, it's hard to pinpoint what the issue really is. So yeah. I think when you simplify diet, um, I don't, I don't really know either. Like I've tried to find research on this. I don't really know that humans were designed to eat a really diverse diet. Um, maybe in some populations, but I know like I'm almost hundred percent Irish. I don't think my ancestors were eating a mixed diet most of the time. Um, and so that I think if people can use their ancestry as with some insight and their symptoms, I think they can find the right diet for themselves. I think that as practitioners, we should be there to guide them and give them the information rather than making guidelines and telling people, here's what you should eat, because I think that does a lot of harm to people. Um, I don't think we should really even have guidelines. I think they've just made a lot of people really sick. Yeah, yeah you, you know, you've, you've hit ahead, on Jeff. a lot of different things that, like, that, that we've talked about on here and that I'm really curious about. But like before we go into that, I want to just just so our listeners know, like the the dietitian you were referencing that we had on was uh Mahela Telekin. Um, okay. she was episode one seventy two, and then the Michael Eads podcast was uh, episode forty eight. So that one was a little further back, but it's, it's still there if you want to check that one out and see what what he had to say about some of the stuff you mentioned. Um, but the thing that what what I kept thinking about when you were kind of telling your story was uh, just highlighting like my suspicions within nutrition and. And I don't know that it's necessarily anyone's fault. I think like nutrition as a science is just so uh, complex relative to maybe some of these other areas where you can really like zone in on specific things where in nutrition, there's so many like confounding variables that are going to happen from day to day life that could impact, you know, the outcome. And then we, we want to try to pinpoint what nutrition is doing within that system, but it's so hard to do that. So then we have someone like yourself, who's, who's very much a professional, uh, also kind of going through this trial and error process, trying to figure out, well, what works best for me versus, you know, what I'm seeing in the literature and what I'm seeing in the general population and everywhere else. And uh, I think a lot of the listeners who aren't, don't have a degree in dietetics are thinking, well, yeah, I mean, that's what I had to do too. And when they see someone like yourself having to kind of also navigate the waters the same way maybe that gives them hope that like they're there, that, that they can, they can solve a problem that they have versus being kind of chronically stuck in a situation that they maybe were told is either preventable if they follow some standard protocol or some medication, but ultimately perhaps, uh, you know, their food choices are impacting some of these things that are on more of an individual level than, than this grand, like follow the, my plate or follow the government regulated or the, the government issued uh, guidelines and, and you'll be fine type of mentality. Yeah. I just think like we can't get away from this plant-based diet. Like we, it's so hard to get away from that. This is the cure all to everything I was listening to. I'm sure you guys listen, listen to the Wilkes Cresser debate. Mm. Um, and it was just kind of, it was hard to listen to because this, he's, he's like, I spent a thousand hours in the literature and blah, blah. And like, well, you kept reading the same stuff over and over and over because that's what, if you, if you go to the literature and you look up um, the epidemiology or 
there's even some RCTs, but if you if you look in the literature and you do a PubMed search or you spend a thousand hours researching, you'll get the same studies over and over and over, the same conclusions over and over and over because there's 20 plant-based studies. Um, so, and they usually always will measure the, in randomized controlled trials, they'll measure the standard American diet versus a plant-based diet. So who's going to win every time? It's, I mean, it's not even like, that difficult just to see that and there'll be 20,000 studies literally and and done in, in those two areas um, but they're not doing them in, in the other areas because the science has been settled culturally like you know the science has been settled so why would we study anything else and it's just um, unfortunately it's just not the case and a lot of like I said a lot of people are becoming very sick because of that and they could have much more meaningful, healthy lives if they would try something else that works for them. Um, yeah, we had uh, Professor Gordon Guyatt on a couple of weeks back, and he, if you don't know, he is one of the eminent uh, researchers in the world on evidence and evaluating evidence. He's got to come up with a great classification for examining all sorts of evidence. And I mean, he basically, like you, says we probably don't need to have dietary guidelines because the evidence we have is so weak that we can't really strongly make any recommendations. And so I would agree that people need to find out what's actually working for them and stop sort of worrying about dying of something 50 years down the road because we just don't have the evidence to support that one way or the other. And so you have to figure out what's making you healthy. I mean, there's something like 20% of Americans now have IBS. I mean, this digestive stuff is becoming more and more rampant. And, you know, clearly diet, diet is making a a big impact on that. And I think we're going the wrong direction. The further we go uh, more plant and, and ultimately more processed food, because it's, you know, much of the, much of the incentive from the big food companies is this processed cheap stuff that they can sell to you. It, it's, it, it, it's sort of uh, enormous markups and make huge profits on. And so that's what we're being directed to do. And it's clearly not, clearly not helping us at all. So, um, yeah, it's good that you as a, as a dietitian are, you know, kind of uh, sort of fighting back on the paradigm. I can remember all the, you know, when I, when I was doing my surgical residency and learning TPN and all that stuff, and that was obviously the purview of the dietitian because we're like, I don't know, you know, that's just that stuff I don't want to have to calculate. But it's diet plays much more of a role than obviously just feeding people, you know, you know. TPN and, and stuff like that. We've got, it, it impacts every single disease process that's out there. You know, even some of the acute things. I mean, some of the fractures I was seeing were, were directly the result of poor diet. I mean, particularly the fragility fractures. So even some of the acute things that we see are ultimately um, related to diet and lifestyle. Yeah. And I see it's, it's hard to every day because I, you know, I work with I, my current job. I'm working with the veterans administration again and um i've done it twice now and it's just it's so interesting to see um like i go into the home so i work in a home-based primary care model so i see what they're eating so i'm not having to rely on i've done i was calculating the other day i'm like i've done probably twenty thousand in my career twenty thousand dietary intake interviews um i've got about twenty thousand patient hours maybe more and so it's given me a really interesting perspective on what people are eating um, and then their clinical outcomes and how that, how they associate with, with each other. So again, like, let me say that these are associations. I would never say like this person's diet caused this um, because we can't really determine that based on this information. But um, I think people are very, very hung up in mortality and trying to like extend their life. There's some people that um, some of these guys are trying to live to 120. And what I see every day, um, you don't want to do that. <laughs> you <laughs> Trust me, you really don't want to live. I mean, my grandma, she's 95. Um, she lives alone. She's independent. She Her cognition is intact. Um, she's fairly healthy with just arthritis as an exception, which is her pain's pretty well controlled. Um, so she would definitely be the exception to that rule. She still enjoys her life, but I get a lot of guys who are like, even in their seventies now, and they just have like multi-system organ failure. Um, they really don't have a good quality of life. And then I'll, I'll get guys in their nineties who, again, like their quality of life is not great. So I think if we can, um, this will probably be really controversial and I get beat up for this, but it's not my, it's not my goal in life to live 
until I'm 90 or 100. Um, I think we should live and thrive and feel good and be um, good at what we do and make it meaningful rather than having to like fast and eat plants and no protein and have just really crappy, tasteless food to push it out till, till we're 90 or 100. Um, and a lot of things are falling apart during those years. So again, like when, what I see every day, I don't want to really necessarily, that's not my goal. <laughs> um, and I think if people saw what I saw every day, they maybe would change their perspective on that a little bit too. Want to be strong and resilient and um, enjoy your life instead of worried about making it to a hundred. So. Yeah, it is interesting when you just put arbitrary numbers on things without any context there. It's like, you know, living to 100 and being miserable is, is probably thought by most people to be much worse than living to 80 and, and thriving. So, you know, when you frame it like that, I think that maybe, maybe kind of reframes people's perspective a little bit, which I think is probably good. Uh, not that we want people trying to die off sooner than, <laughs> than they need to either, but, but it, it, it is one of those things where it's like, we're really, in my opinion, looking at things way too far down the road to really know when we think like that living like a suboptimal long life is, is even really achievable. I would, you know, I, I think we probably will learn a lot in the next, next few years about how applicable that actually is. Like these hyper low protein diets that, you know, that can, you know, minimize the amount of calories you eat on a daily basis, but also minimize your, your energy and your livelihood and somehow eke you out into a hundred years of age or something like that. Yeah. And I mean, there's no guarantee either that doing that will give you those years either. And that's, I think the biggest, if you go to the literature, the literature will tell you that, but that's not what I'm seeing clinically. So like, I guess that's another issue that I have with the nutrition epidemiology or the majority, not even the epidemiology, but the majority of the literature for me, it's not like all these, there's like a few guys are like, I have my nutrition PhD and they're like so pissed off when any, anybody else wants to give nutrition advice because they don't have PhDs. Um, and I'm like, well, I mean, sorry, but that's not much to brag about because <laughs> like nutrition is a mess. The science is a mess. And I think because a lot of the, the research that we've done um, and applied in the wrong ways, people are not healthy. Um, so I think you'll see one thing in the literature, you'll read it over and over and over and over that it will prevent cancer, heart disease or whatever, but I'm not seeing that clinically. I'm seeing people that are following this advice that are on these mixed diets that are, if you look at macros, for example, they're following the, the lower fat um, paradigm and they're still, they still have polypharmacy. They still have, um, CBD still have cancer. Like I would have a lot of cancer patients that would be like, I can't believe I have cancer. I, I'm so healthy. I, I always ate right. And they sort of just, and then, and then they just go to genetics. It's just my really bad genetics that I, you know, um, have this disease. And I think like, you can't say that whatever diet is, you know, causal in that disease, but I think it plays a really big part. And I think telling people to eat this is what Wilkes was saying. His uh, reasoning in the Cresser interview was, was interesting to me because he said every time that he eats or if he would eat an animal product, he would always eat a plant with it to like offset the harm from the animal product. Um, and that's just a fallacy. Um, so it depends on the plant you're eating. It dep depends on the person. So you won't always have like a systemic anti-inflammatory effect from eating plants. Like a lot of people, it's the opposite. So that's just a huge, huge misconception with um, eating animal and plant foods and people get so emotional about it. And so like spend hours and hours researching. And so it'll be interesting to see how um, he's so dogmatic in his beliefs and passionate about the way he eats. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out with his own health. You know, um, that's what I tell people. I'm like, go for it, try it. Um, if you do it and you're doing it on the literature, you better, um, you better hope that there was a good, like when you, he was kept talking about peer reviews and I'm like, well, you better be careful who, who is peer reviewing this, you know, um, that the peer review is a whole nother issue. So you have the same groups of people with the same thoughts, always peer reviewing the literature. Um, so it's just like, we're in a cycle now. I think we'll see a lot of anecdotes um, 
you know, their people are getting better. You, that's truth. Like you can't really argue with that. Right. So how many people are in the carnivore carnivore group? Um, well, I mean, it's hard to accurately assess, but I mean, there are at least many tens of thousands of people now that have done this and, 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 and a high percentage of them seem to have done extremely well with that. Um, that is something we had Anthony Jay on a while back and we, he talked about the same thing with the peer review process that it is kind of a little bit, you know, there's a lot of bias in that as well. And, and we do see that if you don't, if your paper goes against the, the, the sort of the prevailing dogma, then it's likely it won't get published or something like that. So it's very tough to push back against this nutritional dogma. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of interest, um, you know, in keeping things a certain way they are. We had our interview with Don Lehman was talking about how, you know, saying cholesterol is bad and plant-based is good is, is, is directly financially benefiting a hard, a whole number of industries, you know, that, that would like to see that data still be represented as, as the, you know, the, the truth and not be questioned. And so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, we just started signing up for World Carnivore Month. Uh, again, I've done that every January. This will be the third January that I've done that. And, you know, I've already gotten, I've already gotten like 3,500 signups in just the first couple of days, and it's not even January 1 yet. And so I suspect we'll have probably about 10,000 people participating, maybe more, uh, at least that are registering. We're trying to, we're, we're trying to collect, you know, their, they're a little bit of demographic information, how old they are, what country they're from, male, female, so on and so forth. And uh, so that's fun to see. But yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's growing. There is going to be research going away, you know, at least looking at some of this stuff. And I know I'm somewhat involved in some of that. So it's, it's, it's exciting to see, but yeah, it's, it's a long road and, you know, you've still got to convince people that, you know, margarine is not better than butter. <laughs> you know? I mean, we're still fighting that battle for a lot of people. And there's a lot of people have just kind of, they've kind of turned off their brain and they just kind of continue to eat the stuff that they uh, get, get advertised to eat. Well, I think it can be easy to kind of show something as being negative or positive in one context when it's not necessarily that way in another, where like you mentioned with the Wilkes-Cresser debate, when they were talking about the post-exercise I think it was oxidative stress and inflammation. And it's, I think uh, Wilkes's comment was, why would I want the plant material that would normally offset the meat consumption to be taken up by the meat versus being able to address the post-exercise uh, stress? And, you know, my first thought, and I'm open to being wrong about this, is like the certain amount of inflammation, oxidative stress, post-exercise, which you want your body to do in order to actually make you more robust for the next round rather than just kind of push back recovery and essentially never make an improvement as far as I can understand. Uh, so I thought that was, I think that's like an example of like the way you can shape something or shape a, an argument to make it kind of fit your message or fit your narrative in, in someone's mind who just doesn't know any better is going to eat that right up. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I did that for a really long time. I, that was my thought process because listening to him reason through this, I was like, why is he so emotional and passionate about this? And then I was like, oh, I had the same sort of thought process he's going on. Um, and my thinking about trying to prevent disease in myself, trying to feel better, I was always like, I would say pounding plants, like large volumes of plants and vegetables. Um, thinking that this was helpful. And obviously I was having a systemic reaction to this. And I think like, you know, when you look at like plant volume, I think you can take a lot of different contexts here. Like if you talk about environmentalism, if you talk about like ancestral health um, and then just like the health that benefits that plants provide. Um, like there's this thought that like more is better. So like eat frequent amounts of plants and large volumes and that's what I was hearing from him. Um, that was my perception anyway. And so I watch people do this, especially I watch my dietitian peers do this a lot too. Um, and I just don't think it makes anyone feel really good. So I think if plants are in the diet, I think they don't need to be in large volumes. And I don't think that um, we should be eating them like all year round, right? So it should be probably a seasonal thing too, which that's never really studied either. Um, there's not a lot of so there's a few studies on it, but they don't really come to many conclusions because again, it's so clouded with all of these different variables. Um, so like I'll watch, my husband actually grew up in Mexico. So I'll 
and he was poor, so they had to live off the land. And um, so if he wanted a mango, he would literally have to climb a tree, right? So if he wanted a banana, he would have to go to the on his land to get the banana. Um, and so here we get our bananas shipped in from like South America. So why is that good for the environment? Why is that healthy for us? Um, I just think there are so many questions that I have about people doing the things they're doing in nutrition and just, it just brings up a lot of questions that I just think are so, I guess the word I would use would be like unnatural. Like it's not really natural for a human population to eat food that comes from a completely different continent and say that this overall is just like a healthy food. Right. So, um, there's just so many questions that I have. Yeah, I mean, it, it. you know, from an evolutionary plausibility standpoint, it, you know, we clearly couldn't have gotten food from five different continents on the same plate. I mean, that's not realistic. I mean, to think to, to, get, to eat the rainbow would have been very highly impractical in Europe during the Ice Age. So, I mean, there, I mean, some of those things are just not plausible. Whether they're good or not, I think that's still debatable. I mean, I think we, we don't, we can't just dismiss, you know, these foods are bad or not. But we, we do need to see, you know, what's happening to people in 2019 as they do different diets. I think that's important. I think an evolutionary background gives us a framework of which where we can say, yeah, maybe everybody wasn't eating a balanced diet for the most of humanity, which clearly they weren't because we didn't, we didn't have access to a, a quote unquote modern balanced diet. It just wouldn't, wouldn't have existed. And I think one of the big problems that a lot of people have is people fail to separate health from environment from ethical beliefs and we have these people that you know they have a certain ethical belief or ideology and so it colors their perception of everything else and they only see the things that support their their view and we're all, we're all obviously subject to that i certainly see things in a positive meat positive way and and sort of less receptive to the other things and but I, but i think the, the the report with your your sort of um comment on nutrition science, it really is a mess. I mean, it really is just not a very strong science. And that is what people have to understand. I think people have to understand is that, uh, you know, until we can do actual real studies and we probably, we may never be able to do them. We can't really sit there and proclaim what's the best for you or I to eat. What's going to save me from dying at, you know, 70 versus 90. I mean, we don't know. And, and I would agree with you about Every every hundred person year old person I ever met was on a stretcher saying don't live to a hundred because a little old lady with a broken hip. But I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there are some people that are very robust and active in their eighties and nineties, and probably even a few of them at a hundred. And so those are the, those are the few people you want to emulate. And and you know if you if you get to if you get to ninety instead of ninety five, but those ninety years are, are high quality, uh, then that's probably better than living an extra five years disabled and dependent and laying in bed and, you know, in a diaper. So, you know, it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's a different uh, perspective. So what um, have you uh, as a, you know, are you finding that you're able to influence people around you or are you getting any pushback on uh, this sort of dietary choice? Um, so I don't, I can't recommend it to my patients yet because I have a, you know, I have a license and there's no research, um, in this, in the carnivore diet yet. Um, that's another thing is like, once you label something, you have to have like a lot of research behind it. But if I just say, Hey, eat nutrient dense foods, what are those? Um, you know, um, yeah. So I'll tell a lot of people what I'm doing. Um, and they just, they were kind of like I was when I first heard the Eats talk, like, she's nuts. Like, this is so unhealthy. And um, I think people, in my experience, people have to become sick enough or they have to become curious enough in order to make a change, especially in diet and nutrition because of the environment we live in. Um, for me, it was I became sick enough and that's what drove my, motivated me to change. Um, most people I will say are not motivated. (laughs) Like it's being a dietitian is difficult because you're fighting a lot of misinformation. I mean, every time I turn on the TV or go to the store and I see magazines in the store, um, or I just look at what people are putting in their, their grocery carts. Um, there's like strong messages everywhere all day long on the radio, on TV and the magazines. Um, so that's what you're up against. So if you're not 
saying plant-based diet, plant-based diet, um, this will make you healthy, you're up against a lot. So like I said, if you can get into a population that's um, motivated to not buy into that, um, you can see really positive changes in their health outcomes. But that would not be the majority of patients that I would see. Um, I think it's really interesting as a dietitian and a clinician to sit back and watch what's going on in the social media world um, because it does take a community. That's the other thing is I get a lot of people who will say like, I can't stick to this or everyone goes back to like being an American. Um, and I always tell people, if you are living like the other Americans are living, you're going to have the same diseases that they're having. So people get like really upset and they like almost like this grief that they go through, like food grief or something where um, they grieve eating whatever they want to eat at the potluck or the buffet or whatever. And they feel super left out. And um, it's just really interesting to watch that happen. But I think if you have a community of people um, making the same lifestyle choices, that what that will create the change and the um, long lasting changes and then to see, like I said, the positive health outcomes within that community. But I think if you don't have the community support, um, people are not able to stick to the changes just because the environment will always like push them back to like the median, right? So um, that community piece is super important, but yeah, I don't prescribe. Um, so I'm a diabetes educator. So I try to use low carb with most of my diabetics, which makes sense, right? Um, and there are guidelines to support that. Um, I generally, if you can frame it in the right sort of terms, um, people don't realize that they're eating more animal foods. It's just nutrient density and lower carb. Um, so it depends on like how you frame it. But um, as far as like eating a carnivore diet and people sticking to it, it would take that community piece, which is what these online communities provide people. Um, and then somebody who is, you know, um, sharing their positive stories all the time too. Like those anecdotes I think are really powerful too. So yeah, as far as like what I'm doing and pushback, um, I think people are excited to see the health changes that I've experienced. Um, so what I do personally, and this is a little bit of a dichotomy too with a lot of dietitians is like what we do in our personal lives and how we eat, I can say, I can, I, I eat this way. In my own personal life and share my story but we can't prescribe it right so we have to continue to watch our patients get sick yeah you know that that is an interesting thing i wonder how many people they they would go in with that question specifically because then they can kind of get to the root of where where their dietitian actually uh feels uh the best best route at least for them is but um i'm curious about like a or a question with uh when we mentioned before, it's a lot of times people aren't going to make a change until they're kind of up against something that forces it their way. Is, is there stuff that you're seeing more routinely motivating people? Like I can think of a few that I would imagine like digestion would be a big one where people are coming in and they're saying, Hey, like, you know, I need help because my digestion is, is crazy bad. Uh, or is there other things that are more influential? more influential in having people decide, okay, I gotta, I gotta make something, a meaningful change versus just, you know, cleaning up a couple things here or there. Yeah, that's a really good question. That's, um, I mean, that's really what as a dietitian we have to figure out to do. And that's like a really individual thing. So for me, um, when I made this change and I decided to take a different perspective or to like look into the science a little bit harder, um, for me, it was like mostly based on my digestion. So like my, um, even though my fatigue level still is pretty bad and my, um, my pain is not super well controlled with this autoimmune condition I have, um, my digestion, I will say is like a completely, I'm like a different person. So like, um, you guys can't relate to this, but when you're pregnant, you just feel like an extreme amount of pressure in your abdomen for 10 months. <laughs> or close to 10 months. And then when you have the baby, you don't anymore. And it, you just feel completely, you feel so good. And that's how I would describe when I spent 30 something years of just being bloated and uncomfortable all the time and not enjoying eating and like socializing. And you even lose sleep because you have abdominal pain and pressure. Um, and then when you don't have that anymore and it's gone, it's just like, it's a new way of living, I guess would be 
the best way to describe that. So I try to share that story with people um, who have the digestive issues because it's like um, Sean said, there's it's like 20% of the population has like idiopathic IBS. We don't know how to treat it, but they, if you go to a GI doctor, um, like the, their standard of care is to add like Miralax, Metamucil, scope people, give them PPIs. Um, and they're just band-aids and most pe people's symptoms actually get worse, like mine did. Um, so then you start to get like, then there's like the psychological piece to it too, because then you're like, well, I'm being compliant, this compliance model of medicine too. Um, like I'm doing everything this doctor is asking me to do. Um, I'm not getting better. I actually feel worse. And then the doctor will say, well, you need to go get your head checked. You, this is like a psychological issue and you need to work on your stress level. And it's like, well, I'm stressed because I don't feel good. Right. So it's like this vicious cycle. Um, so I think for me, my motivating thing was just, I, I was just like not accepting that I was going to spend my whole life not feeling good. Um, because I could see other people that were not having the same digestive issues. I had lived my whole life like this. I know for, um, some of the other clients that I work with, um, with like raging diabetes and horrible like metabolic syndrome, um, one of my clients is a nurse. She's got four kids. And she said to me, I just had to like, I had to hear your story because I didn't want to leave my kids. I didn't, I don't want to be on dialysis and with macular degeneration and blind and lose limbs. when I'm 50 years old, like I want to be here for my kids. I want to be a grandmother. Um, so that's another big motivator that I see with people is wanting to be there for their kids. And they've tried everything like people with metabolic syndrome, um, that are overweight, obese, um, they usually have like never woken up one day of their life and said, I still want to be fat. I still want to be obese. They've tried tons of diets. Like they've tried a lot of things. Um, I mean, I know like I have a family member who's just a year older than me and we could eat the same exact foods and she would be like 50 pounds heavier than me. Right. So it's like very individual there too. Um, so I think with obesity, those people get to a point where it's like they've tried every single diet and usually they taste really crappy. <laughs> um, they can be expensive. And so it's like, why are they, and they're hungry. So that's another thing that I really loved about the carnivore diet was um, I was perpetually hungry. I was hungry all the time because I was malabsorbing food. Um, and so one of the things that I've been really surprised about is I don't really have to eat very much. Like I, I really don't eat a lot and I used to eat so often and so frequently in large volumes of food. Um, and I just thought I must have this like huge appetite compared to my peers. Um, I would eat more than like guys would eat. And when you, I remove the plants from my diet, um, I actually don't eat a lot. I forget to eat all the time. And if you would have told me that, five years ago, I would have said, you're nuts, you know, like fiber slows gastric emptying. So we have to have fiber in our diet. Um, but I don't know that slowing gastric emptying is a good thing. <laughs> you know, like, I'm like, where did that become a good thing? I don't think that's a good thing. Um, does gastric emptying really um, equal satiety? For me, it certainly didn't. It gave me GERD <laughs> and like <laughs> a cytokine inflammatory response, but it didn't help me feel full or satiated. Um, so I think that will motivate people too, is like, they feel good. They don't like not being hungry is awesome. Not being bloated is awesome. So you just have to get people there first. Um, what helps with that usually is not nutrition literature. What helps get people there are anecdotes, right? So um, that's why they can, they, they won't necessarily get it from their practitioners, but they can go online and get it and see these other stories happening. Um, because like, overweight and obese people, they have some really messed up and cretin signaling going on. They've been hungry their entire lives. Um, and you get those people to not be hungry. It's like a true miracle. So like, why would they go back the other direction? Right. I mean. Yeah, no. And you mentioned something interesting too, because I think when people probably oftentimes come to you and other dietitians with the question saying, Hey, I saw so-and-so, or I saw online this anecdote of someone having sex with X diet. And I think it could probably be easy for someone in that profession to be like, get sick of hearing that and be like, oh, that's, you know, that's not backed by science, not backed by this. But if you look at it in a different way, like here you have someone who's motivated out of interest, curiosity, or seeing results from someone else to maybe try something that could lead them down the right path for their own health and well-being. 
And it's like, if you see that and catch it, you could probably leverage it in a way where like, here we got someone who's maybe more motivated or ready to, to listen and to hear about some, some approach that they may find sustainable for themselves. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I think if you, if you think about what a scientist or a clinician should do, it like really is what we should do is provide people with information. Um, I think is what we're doing now and what we're trained to do is, like I mentioned before, the compliance model is here's what's absolute truth and here's what's right based on all these studies. And now it's my job to persuade you to do this like one specific thing. Um, and so I think at the beginning of my career, I was a lot like that. And I would get so upset when people, like I, I mentioned the, the CrossFit people were like, I like a caveman. And I'm like, Oh, they're, they don't know anything about nutrition. And, um, now even like when, like, I'll have a lot of friends that will ask me about the documentaries that will ask me about game changers. And so I'll give them my perspective on that. And I'm like, go for it, go try to, you know, go for the vegan diet, try to eat a plant-based diet. Um, obviously my bias is, is not that way of eating. Um, but I still, I feel like have a duty to say, here's my perspective. Here's what's in the literature. Like go for it. Um, see what happens. Let people self-experiment. It, it never really, it's kind of like dealing with kids or toddlers. Like if you tell them no, a lot of times they're going to go do it anyway. Um, when they hear about like things like that. Um, but I think is what we should, like I said, what we should be doing is supporting people and whatever they're motivated to do. And then, I teach people too, like nutrition is really dynamic. So um, I'm eating this way at this time in my life because it's working the best for me. Um, but you always have to be open to making tweaks here and there. And people are really uncomfortable with that too. So they want like, I just want to eat this diet for the rest of my life. Um, and then they're going to be comfortable and they feel happy about that. But I'm like, you have to be open to always changing it because your health will change your aging, like different things will happen. Um, I think first we have to help people figure out how to meet their nutrition needs. Um, I think what we're doing right now is helping people meet the needs of like their microbiome <laughs> or mm -hmm. other things that are not like, like, well, let's feed the, like, let's feed the person first before we worry about like feeding their microbiome. Like that's another issue that I have. Cause I was always super worried about my microbiome and I don't think we know anything about the microbiome yet. We know very little about it or how to change it. And I think it's that too is very individual. So um, I'm like, well, let's go back to basics here. We know we need amino acids. Um, we know we need certain fats. So why don't we first do that? Which is why I like the basics of the, the carnivore diet. It's really simple. Um, I know that when people are eating that way, they're meeting their basic physiologic needs. I can't say that with a lot of the other ways that people are eating. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, uh, you know, clear bio, biochemical facts of what we need as humans, and it's essential amino acids, essential fats, you know, vitamins and minerals, and that's it. And, and none of this other stuff is fiber is not essential, phytonutrients aren't essential. They may have be conditionally beneficial, and most of the evidence that would support that being so is is sort is generally observational epidemiologic data, which is just clearly not very good data. So. Um, I wanted to go back to the support thing because, I mean, as a dietitian, you you know, it's very easy to give people knowledge. I mean, I tell people, hey, just eat a bunch of meat, drink a bunch of water, and you're good. And that works for a, for a percentage of the people, but then there are a certain percentage that need ongoing support, whether it's emotional support, psychological support, uh, you know, just further knowledge. Uh, talk to me about the, the role of that in diet in general, because, you know, we just launched a company, MeetRx.com, where we have coaching support. And I think it, I think the literature clearly shows that having ongoing support equals greater success long term. What, what has been your experience with a dietitian with different dietary schemes and, and, and needing the, the additional support? Because when a, say, a physician or somebody refers their patient to a dietitian, they probably don't know what goes on other than they're going to get told how to eat. But I mean, and, and are, are physicians sending people to you and say, Hey, uh, put this person on this diet, or is it just basically help them lose weight? What's, what's usually the deal that you run into? Um, yeah. So the first part of that, the coaching piece, I think, um, I think for any sort of like behavior change in your life, you need a community and you need coaching. So you need, like I kind of, I watch what you do and I sit back and I observe Sean and I'm like, okay, so you're a character. I mean, you are, people are drawn to like, people like to watch what you do. Okay. 
um, you do some pretty extreme things. Same with you, Zach. Like it's, it's, you have to make it fun. Like for behavior change, if it's so boring and it like, that's the other thing. I'm like, who wants to eat quinoa? Like I would rather eat a ribeye, you know, like it has to be fun. It has to be like pleasurable, especially in our society. Like people like to be comfortable. They like to have fun. Um, it's so un-American to not have fun or be comfortable. Um, so since we're Americans, let's just be honest about that. First of all. Um, so you're kind of like a coach, Dr. Baker, when I watch you, you're like, okay. Um, you're always posting your workouts you're, and that's the beauty of like the tool of social media that we have now um, that there are studies coming out using things like social media, but it's like, it's a really, really good way to drive behavior change is that social media coaching piece. Um, like when I'm watching you do your kettlebell swings and stuff like that, I like want to get up and go lift some weights, <laughs> you know? Um, so having that, people having access to that constant coaching piece is so important. I think in the traditional model, um, if you're looking at driving behavior change and wellness, um, that was not there 10 years ago, right? Like Instagram wasn't really there 10 years ago. So um, that piece is huge, huge for behavior change. You have to have the coaching piece. Um, when doctors are sending me patients, the doctors that I work with in my private practice, um, they kind of, I did work with a doctor for a little while and she would say, do the autoimmune protocol or do, and that wasn't really my style. So I actually said, it's probably best that we don't work together because um, that's not how I, if I'm sent a patient, I want to be able to take the whole big picture approach and be able to use my knowledge and my skills to help that person with behavior change. So if it's like a prescription from a doctor saying do autoimmune protocol and I'm going to do like, especially in the functional medicine world, um, some of those referrals will be, and this will probably piss a few people off too. So I'm just going to apologize ahead of time. <laughs> but um, it's like how many functional medicine tests and supplements does a person need to be healthy, right? Like it's, you know, I'll watch people go down that road too. And I did that for a little while um, myself. I thought, well, I'm going to be a functional medicine dietitian and that's how I'm going to make people healthy is with like a lot of tests and supplements. And um, the plant-based diet is usually always a part of that too. Um, but I would just see these people spend like $10,000. I'm like, this is not really different than conventional medicine model, but this insurance, their insurance companies are not paying for this. So I asked my friend one time, I said, how much money have you spent trying to treat your Hashimoto's and it was like $10,000 out of pocket and she ended up with a thyroidectomy anyway. So I was just like, what are we doing here? So then I stepped out of that. I was like, this is not right for me either. So when I do work with and take referrals, um, it's with the understanding that I can help the, the patient from an individual and I'm not going to just use a diet prescription because anybody can go and do that. Um, so generally the, the ones that I work with, it's a really good team and we're on the same page. Yeah, that is interesting. Cause I think the, like the coaching component or the, like having that support is probably one of the biggest reasons some of these diets fail in the first place. I think diets in general have a pretty poor adherence percentage uh, when they deviate too far from what the average person is doing. And I mean, that makes sense to me because it's like we're in an environment that's going to influence us to try to go one way. So if you decide to swim upstream, so to speak, you're probably going to have a lot more hurdles than the average person who's just grabbing whatever's available. But then you kind of hack that environment by creating community or building supports around you. Then I think that probably improves that adherence stuff by quite a bit. And it sounds, sounds kind of like that's what you're more or less saying social media and things are, are, if we want to look at the positive end of that sort of stuff is going to hopefully do a good job of. Yeah. And you have to teach people that they're not like the, you know, the title of this podcast is human performance outliers. Like you have to teach them that they're an outlier. They're not like everybody else. If they want to, um, you know, have an increase in performance and feel better, you're not, you're not going to go to the buffet and eat everything off the buffet, right? Like <laughs> you're going to, you're going to live differently. Um, you know, it's interesting, even in my household, like we joke because my husband's, my husband's diet is terrible. It's like, you don't treat family members. Um, but he grew up poor. Um, so when he came to the States for him, it's like, he's having, he's having food now that's available to him 24, seven, 365. So he has very different values about food and nutrition than I have. And he gets, sometimes he gets 
and there's a cultural component there too. Like he'll get worried that I'm not eating. Um, like he'll always want me to have a tortilla with him and stuff like that. (laughs) I don't, I don't need that. I don't necessarily like that. Um, so there are just so many things, um, different contexts, different like cultural perspectives, um, just like different, you know, differences in all of these things and why people would make the change. But if you do want to be an outlier, um, you do, I think, like I said, in my opinion, you need a coach um, and you need a community, right? So you're going to do what mostly in in the community that you're involved in, you're going to do what those other people are doing, which that's not necessarily in America going to translate to good health outcomes because we know what those are in America, right? So do you want to be like everybody else? Um, Probably not if you want to be healthy. Yeah, yeah, well, Kathleen, if you could, you want to share with our listeners where they can find you, any social media website or any uh, places that, that you'd like to share publicly? Sure. So I have my private practice. I do a telehealth business um, and it's called rhythmnutrition.net because I work a lot too. I try to get people to understand circadian rhythms and why it's not a good idea to eat at 10 o'clock at night. Um, how that plays into health too. So my website is rhythmnutrition.net. And so if you want to find me, you can contact me there. Awesome. Sean, you got anything else or? No, I want to say thanks for sharing your story. It's good to see more and more, you know, people in their nutrition. You know, I, I, I increasingly get more and more physicians, dietitians, uh, nutritional therapy practitioners, you know, whatever healthcare providers that, are sort of opening their mind up, you know, they're, 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 they're sort of saying, wait a minute, let's look at, let's look at actual results that our people are getting, not what we're sort of seeing written down on paper, because it's a very different thing, you know, and it's, it's good to see that you're doing that. So I appreciate you being out there. And I think our listeners are going to really like this one and look forward to your further, uh, you know, further growth and, and seeing how you spread spread a message, hopefully impact more and more lives. Cause this is hopefully what, what, you know, we've got to, when we go out and about and we see all the people like just going to the grocery store is almost a sort of almost depressing. Cause you see how, yes. many, how many sick people there are out there and what they're using. You know, they've got essentially no nutrition in their cart. You know, they've got a lot of calories and garbage, but no nutrition. And so it's uh, going to take a lot of people continuously 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, countering the, the 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 multi-billion dollar you know marketing strategies of these companies so anyway it's tough 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 going awesome well thank you kathleen for coming on the show um and we will uh look forward to getting this one out to our listeners thanks guys hey folks human performance outliers podcast is growing And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.